Welcome to Orchard Community Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad you are here to learn, grow, and deepen your relationship with Christ. This week's message is brought to you by Pastor Matt Hoyt. There is a kind of healthy competition, a kind of competition that pushes us to be our best while continuing to care about the people around us and to honor them. But at the same time, there's also an unhealthy kind of competition that causes us to stop caring about the people around us, to stop honoring them, and to focus solely on ourselves, on our wants, and on our needs. And you know, it's not just in competitive situations that we have to be wary of this kind of self-centered disposition that's so easy for us to take on. In every situation that we face, we have to be aware of the reality, the natural tendency that each one of us has to selfishly put ourselves before others and to arrogantly put ourselves above them. Now, the fact that we're prone to do this is one of the things that the Bible is pointing to when it refers to us as sinners, Sometimes people try to deny the idea that we're sinners, but it's a really pretty hard thing to do. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that this word really does describe us. Because we're not perfect. I like when we say that, we're not perfect. It sort of makes it sound like we're just shy of perfect. (laughs) We're not anywhere near perfect. We are flawed, imperfect beings. And because of that, we blow it. We make mistakes. We do damage. We hurt other people. We hurt ourselves. That's the truth of who we are. It's also why when in this world we see someone do something truly selfless, it stands out. It even makes the news at times because we know that it goes against the grain of our natural, selfish, sinful nature. And that's the struggle today, the struggle between this sinful, selfish nature and God's call for something better that's at the heart of our passage for this morning. Well, today we are continuing on in our series of messages, Authentic Faith, based on the book of Philippians. And we've been talking about how we live in a world where there are lots of different expressions of faith. And sadly, so many of those expressions of faith fall really painfully short of what we would hope for because we don't want to live a faith that's plastic, it's fake, a faith that's just for show for other people or ends up being us just going through the motions or becomes arrogance or is cookie cutter or there's just so many lesser expressions of faith. We would like an authentic faith. We'd like something that's real and genuine and and meaningful. So we're after a relationship with God lived in an honest way. And the book of Philippians really gives us this kind of amazing snapshot of the Apostle Paul and how he lived his faith. As we see him write to the Philippians and talk about his own life, we see this wonderful, authentic quality, something just so genuine and honest that's really compelling. So this fall, we're looking at the book of Philippians and we're seeing how we can live an authentic faith. And today, we're going to focus on the fact that authentic faith leads to a disposition of humility and service a disposition just like the one that Jesus had. 
So pray with me and we'll get started. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that you would speak with power to us today because we know our natural tendency is to think me first. And yet you call us to something better than that. You call us to humility. You call us to service. Lord, help us to see that in a new and deeper way this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage for this morning is Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11, but we're going to begin with just the first four verses of the passage. So Paul writes this. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any communion in sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, Paul says. So verse 1, Paul opens this passage by calling the Philippians to reflect on the good things that they've experienced since they came to faith, since they were united with Jesus, meaning he came into their lives. He came into their hearts. And Paul does this with four statements right out of the gate that all begin with the phrase, if any. And he's using these statements kind of as a searching question. He's sort of saying, hey, reflect on your life and your faith and see if you've experienced any of these important things. And it's these are rhetorical questions because Paul knows very clearly that they have experienced all of these great things. And each time that Paul repeats this phrase, he kind of raises his intensity. He's writing like a preacher here. Listen again to what he says in, uh, in this passage. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, you can just feel that Paul's power of his words are rising towards making an important point. And what he's doing is he's setting up the Philippians, he's setting up for them some motivation. He's got something for them to do, and he's providing the motivation toward that. So it's like he's saying, since you've experienced all these great things in Christ, here's the next step, the next thing that I want you to do. But before he names that next thing in, in verse 2, Paul adds one more thing. He says, if you do these things, that they'll make his joy complete. Now, we need to remember that Paul and the Philippians had a deep relationship. Paul had founded the church at Philippi. He was an apostle. He was kind of their father figure in faith. So they wanted to please him, and Paul uses that as motivation as well towards what he's calling them to do. And so in the second part of verse 2, he finally comes to that thing that he wants them to do, and he again uses four statements, four short statements, calling the Philippians to one thing, and that thing is unity. Notice how he says it in verse 2. He says, Then you'll make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and one in mind. Unity. So this call for unity is not a new thing. Paul has actually called them to this before. In chapter 1, Paul called them to strive together as 
one person for the faith of the gospel. But you know, that first call to unity, that was unity in the face of persecution from outside the church. This call to unity here, this is a call to unity directed inside the church. It seems that the Philippians, inside their church, they were having some problems with unity. And you know, I read that, and I thought, I am so glad that we here at Orchard Community Church never have any problems like that. I mean, the way we always agree 100% about everything, it's beautiful, right? Yeah, yeah. So Paul's words here are pretty applicable, not just to the Philippians, but to every church, because life together is not always easy. So later in chapter 4, if you re- as we read on, we're going to find that Paul actually names one of the divisions in the church. There's two women in the church that are arguing about something. We're not told what it is, but Paul urges them to agree. We've also seen that Paul has written this letter, at least in part, to address the fact that there were some rival preachers in that time who were spreading misinformation about Paul. And what may have happened is that maybe in the congregation, people had some competing loyalties to those other preachers. We, we actually see that in the book of, of Corinthians where Paul says, some of you are for this person, some of you are for that person, and we really all should be about Jesus. So that could be the case here. But whatever the problems were, it's at this point that Paul really comes to the main point of this passage. And what he's talking about is the attitude that they are going to need, that we are going to need, if we're going to be united. And it's really the disposition that we ought to have as we deal with all people, both inside the church and outside the church. Paul says in verses 3 and 4 here, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's Paul's advice for us. Now, that phrase, selfish ambition, it's the word epithean in Greek, and it also means rivalry. It's the same word that Paul used to talk about those rival preachers who were stirring up trouble back in chapter 1. And that phrase, vain conceit, uh, it literally means something like empty glory. So together, these two words indicate that, that competing with others is empty and meaningless. Now, we know from last week's passage that Paul has said very clearly that what we do matters. It matters a lot. And so Paul here is warning us about behavior that can be destructive, but really is, is this false glory, this grasping after something that we think is important, but really is meaningless. Something that falls terribly short of Paul's call for us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That call from last week. So in contrast to that, Paul urges them to be humble. Now, humility is one of those words that kind of sounds nice in our ears. We like the idea of humility mostly, especially when other people are being humble. But the Philippians, that would not have landed on their ears the same way. The idea that someone was calling them to be humble would have seemed foreign and novel. Because in the Greco-Roman world, uh, humility was not held in high regard. The Greeks and the Romans thought of humility as like weakness. They were empire builders. They valued power. They valued strength. And so this call to humility would have been strange to them. 
Then Paul goes on to say, not only be humble, but consider others better than yourself. This would have been so foreign. Paul calls them to take on the attitude of a servant towards one another. These were people that were used to being served, not to serving other people. So Paul is calling for something really countercultural in their setting. And you know the reality is we're not actually that different than the, the Greeks and the Romans, aren't we? Now, on the one hand, most of us would recognize things like humility and service as virtues. They probably wouldn't, so we're different in that way. But in exactly the same way as them, we live in a culture that's mostly a me-first culture. And in that way, we are very much like them. And so Paul calls us to be countercultural too, not falling into the trap we can so easily of selfishly putting ourselves before others and arrogantly putting ourselves over others in all the big and the small ways that we are prone to do that on a daily basis. So continuing in verse 4, Paul makes it clear that he's not talking about total self-denial. Sometimes people think that. Well, is Paul saying I should just be a doormat, consider others better than myself? That's not exactly it. Paul says you can care for yourself. You should care about your own interests, but just not only your own interest. We're called to an attitude that places the needs of others at the forefront of our mind. We're to live differently, not just thinking of ourselves, not just looking out for ourselves, but looking out for others. And Paul is clear in all of this that a self-centered approach to life is not God's desire for us. It's not what authentic faith truly looks like. And I can think of at least three reasons for that. And the first one is this. A self-centered perspective on life leads to unhappiness by definition. How many selfish, arrogant people have you ever met, and how happy were they? Not very. So listen to this. How to be miserable. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own view and everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you for the favors you show them. Never forget a service you have rendered. Shirk your duties whenever you can. Do as little as possible for others. I mean, the reality is there are a few things in this life that can suck the joy out of it than being self-centered. So self-centered perspective just leads to an unhappy life. Number two, a self-centered perspective distorts our view of the world and it distorts our view of other people. The weekend after September 11th, 9-11, a columnist and presidential speechwriter Peggy Noonan wrote about a really humbling experience that she had. She had driven down to ground zero and found herself focusing on the trucks filled with workers and, and emergency responders who were working 12-hour shifts. And she writes that the men in these trucks were construction workers and electrical workers, police, emergency medical workers, and firemen. It was a procession of the not-so-rich and famous. 
Nonetheless, these New Yorkers had become heroes in our human drama. She joined in the crowd in cheering and clapping for the workers and shouting, God bless you, we love you. She writes, I looked around me and all of a sudden I noticed that all of us who were cheering, who all of us were, we were investment bankers, orthodontists, magazine editors, and my group, a lawyer, a columnist, a writer. We were the kings and queens of the city, respected professionals in a city that respected the professional class. But that night, we were nobody. We were so useless. All we could do was applaud the somebodies, the workers, who, unlike us, had not been applauded much in their lives. I was so moved, oddly, I guess, grateful, because they'd always been the people who had run the place, who kept it going. They'd just never been given their due. Amazing shift of perspective. Humility goes a long way towards helping us to see the world and to see other people with greater clarity, with a truer eye towards who and how things actually are. So number three, a self-centered perspective distorts our view of ourselves. In an interview with Oprah Winfrey a few years back, Denzel Washington talked about the way his mother helped to keep his ego in check when he first uh, achieved some success as an actor. He writes, I walked into the house one day feeling full of myself, a movie star. I said to my mother, do you ever think any of this was going to happen? And she was like, please, first of all, go wash the windows for me. You have no idea how many people have been praying for you since when you were still being a knucklehead. (laughs) Humility helps us see the truth about ourselves. You see, authentic faith, it leads us to a disposition of humility and of humble service to others. Let's look at the second half of this passage, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing by taking up the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So a natural question that we might come to in this passage as we've picked up what Paul is saying. Paul's saying authentic faith should lead to a disposition of humility and service. And a a natural question for us might be, okay, well, what does that look like? Can you give me an example? And Paul anticipates that question. And so in verse 5, he begins to explain that Christ is our example. He says we're to have the same attitude as Jesus in our dealings with other people. Now, this next section of the passage, you might notice if you've got your Bible out the way, it's set off interestingly. And that's because most uh, New Testament scholars believe that what Paul is doing here is quoting an ancient hymn text that was sung in the ancient church, but he found that its words were appropriate for making his point right here. So in 
verse 6, the hymn begins stating that Jesus was God in very nature. And although that meant that he was equal with God, it says that he didn't use that equality to his own advantage. The Greek here literally says he didn't try to seize it. He didn't try to grasp that equality for his own self-serving purposes. And instead of that, verse 7 says that he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. For our sake, instead of taking his rightful place of equality with God in heaven, Jesus stepped down into our world. And he took on the very nature, it says, of a servant. That word servant can also be slave by becoming human. And Jesus did this for us. He did it so that he could come here and tell us the truth of God's love and grace. He did it so that he could come here and set an example for us of how we ought to live and be and what we ought to do. And he did it so that ultimately he could die on the cross for our sin to bring us grace. So verse 8 says that. It says he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for our sake. The ultimate selfless act of service. Jesus obediently submitted himself to God's plan for us, for our salvation. And there is a huge irony that we should recognize here in the way that Paul talks about this. Because in the Greco-Roman world, humility and service were weakness. But what Paul is presenting here is Jesus having the strength and the courage to do what was necessary, to humble himself that much. Paul reframes the entire understanding of those things, saying, you know what takes real strength, you know what takes real power, is to humble yourself and to serve others. Well, verse 9, there's the word therefore. It's the turning point of the hymn. It's emphatic in Greek. You could have like an exclamation point, like someone shouting, therefore, as the whole thing turns. And it says, God exalted Jesus, meaning God raised him up. Remember, Jesus stepped down, became a servant, became nothing, humbled himself, became selfless. And it says that God exalted him. God lifted him up to the highest place, granting him everything that was due him. Because although things like humility and service often aren't valued in this world in the way that they ought to be, those things are highly valued in God's eyes. And the hymn closes with a doxology, a statement of glory to God. And what it proclaims is how exalted Jesus is. How high God actually lifts Jesus up in verses 10 and 11. Because it says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge on, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus humbled himself, and God raised him up. And that's the promise for us as well. If we will humble 
ourselves, God will lift us up too. Not necessarily in the eyes of the world, but in his eyes. And that's what really matters, his eyes. Now, one last little thing about this passage. Verse 6 begins the hymn, and it says that Jesus, having been in very nature God. That phrase, in very nature, it could also be created, was made in the image of. Do you remember somebody else that was created in the image of God? Jesus was created in the image of God, and he was equal, but he did not grasp at that equality. But there was someone else who was made in the image of God, and he was not equal to God, and he grasped at that equality. Who was that? Adam. Paul is contrasting Adam and Jesus here. He's contrasting our selfish human nature, which Adam epitomizes, He's contrasting that way of being with the way of Jesus, with seeking to take on this humble servant attitude. Pastor Brian Wilkinson writes this. He says, Taylor University is a Christian college in Indiana, and years ago they were pleased to learn that an African student named Sam was going to be enrolling at their school. This was before it was commonplace to have international students come to the U.S. and study. He was a bright young man with great promise, and the school felt honored to have him. When he arrived on campus, the president of the university took him on a tour, showing him the dorms. And when the tour was over, the president asked Sam, where would you like to live? And the young man replied this. He said, if there is a room that no one wants, give that room to me. And the president was stunned, said that he turned away with a tear in his eye. Because he'd been the president of this university, this bastion of Christianity and Christian values for years and years and years and years. And not one of the Christian men and women who had come to that campus had ever made a request like that. We can imagine what the requests are. I just moved two girls into college. We're looking for the biggest room. We're looking for the best room. One of mine has an ocean view. My girls, yeah. But this humble student said, if there's a room nobody wants, give that to me. And that's the kind of humility and servanthood that de Jesus demonstrated with his life. If there's a job that no one wants to do, I'll do it. If there's a parking spot that's far away from church, I'll park in that space. If there's a hardship someone has to endure, I'll take on that hardship. If there's a sacrifice that someone needs to take, I'll make that sacrifice. Authentic faith leads to a disposition of humility and service just like that of Jesus. So friends, may we go and do likewise. Amen. Pray with me. Loving God, we know that it is easy for us to sit in church and to speak words like humility and service and to say amen. And then in our daily lives, not to live and practice these things. We know that our sinful, selfish nature is insidious and rises up and causes us to be less than our best selves all the time. We pray, Lord, for something better than that, that we would give our hearts and our minds over to you so deeply that more and more and more we look like Jesus. We look like people with that same humble disposition of service. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.